0: conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you.
1: Well, welcome back everybody. This is Doug Bradford. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington. Whew, here at Mount Vernon, George Washington's estate, and I'm delighted to welcome for our conversation today Professor Edward Gray.
2: Ed? Thanks, Doug. Very happy to be here. Well, as I
1: recall, you were here before at the Washington Library, but only fleetingly for a workshop that we had, which was organized by Josh Piker of the William and Mary Quarterly and Catherine Kelly of the Journal of the Early Republic, to look at the state of the field of uh, the American
2: Revolution. Yeah, this was an interesting little mini-conference where uh, Josh and Kathy solicited papers from various scholars who are interested in thinking about um, what has been a long-standing kind of tension in the study of the American Revolution. Um, we, we kind of have two areas of scholarship, one that deals with the time of the revolution and the period preceding it, and another that tends to deal with the time of the revolution and the period preceding it yeah. or coming after. Mm. And the latter tends to be represented in one journal, the Journal of Re- Early Republic, mm. the former more commonly in the other journal, uh, the, um, uh, the William and Mary Quarterly. Mm. So, the purpose of the conference, I think, was to uh, see if there couldn't be ways to develop dialogues between those two sort of spheres of scholarly interest the mm-hmm. one that deals with the uh, preceding period and the one that Deals with the early republic or the period that comes after the revolution, yeah. um, and somehow, uh, whether there was, I think the you know the the, the primary object was to uh, you know generate some kind of continuities or connections that would link what these two journals have tended to do as separate things and draw them together as a kind of common enterprise, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the hope was that out of this conference would come some papers that suggested ways that. Uh, the colonial era could be drawn together with the period of the early republic Mm. Um, these tend to be the designations for the period before the revolution and the period after the revolution
1: I Um, I remember it being a very creative and interesting conversation from a lot of different uh, very good scholars from all over the map of of the field right now yeah
2: yeah I think it was although I think um, uh, or one of the virtues of it was that you know, this is a pretty capacious imperative. Yeah. What do we make of the revolution? How do we connect the before to the after? Um, and the result was that we had some, you know, a rich variety of different approaches to this problem. Yeah. Some people uh, dealt with it from a historiographical perspective, meaning mm-hmm. their concern mm-hmm. was, you know, how have scholars treated these issues and right is there really a a breakdown as this uh, the two journals and their kind of experience suggests or Mm -hmm. was that actually not borne out in the evidence Um, and then we had others who wrote papers uh, that actually tried to to draw linkages between yeah, make an argument right exactly yeah Mm -hmm. so
1: yeah Uh, so American Revolution was it radical or conservative what's your answer
2: whoa three words it was Radical or conservative—I uh, <laughs> don't know. I—I uh, I, um, I, I tend to teach it. I—I uh, I tend to teach it as a as a conservative uh, revolution, although um, I don't really. I'm not sure that designation is appropriate, but I do mm-hmm. tend to teach it as a uh, a, a series of constitutional problems. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, uh, uh, you know, a kind of uh, internal, internecine civil war yeah. and struggle within for authority and that sort of thing. That seems um, to be the trend in the
1: literature, though, particularly to emphasize the civil war
2: yeah aspect of absolutely. it. absolutely. I mean, it, it, and I think um, there's no doubt that that's the case. Um, I
1: mean, Alan Taylor's recent study yeah, kind of being the synthesis of the field yeah, uh, of the last uh, 15 uh, years or so.
2: Yeah, that that's certainly true. Um, although I don't know, I think, I think uh, one can point to other trends that suggest the opposite. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have a. I mean, for the last, you know, thirty or forty years, I think the prevailing interpretation has been uh, social discord, uh, inner mm-hmm. conflict, civil war. Um, you know, uh, radicalism from below, uh, activism from below. The the sort of. Uh, um, politics out of doors, as it's sometimes called. Ordinary mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, generating revolutionary uh, uh, change. Um, that That's certainly been, I think, the dominant uh, kind of perspective on the revolution for quite some time. And, and it was very much the dominant perspective when I started studying it mm-hmm. in the, you know, uh, mid-1980s. Um, um, and you were at Brown yeah, in graduate school. My My graduate advisor, Gordon Wood, was sort of one of the founders of the uh, ideological schools it's sometimes called, or the neo whig schools it's sometimes called. Um, generally, uh, he wouldn't accept this argument, but he's often associated with mm. a kind of uh, intellectual interpretation of the revolution and focusing on constitutional change and, and the activities of leaders and you know lawyers and that sort of thing, rather than, uh, you know, plebeian, the uh, right, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 but I think, in a weird way, the, the the field has sort of shifted. I mean, the, the yeah. sort of social upheaval aspect of the revolution, which had been so dominated, uh, so dominant for so long, um, is still there. And I think still there's, you know, uh, quite a bit of interest in, in the bottom up history of the revolution. Um, but you see a weird thing happening these days where, people writing on the American Revolution tend to be doing so from the British perspective. Um, And there's an awful lot of work that's being done and been done in the last uh, five or 10 years, uh, both by Brits and by Americans who are kind of looking at it from a British perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And that tends to revert back to something that is more, I guess, of a conservative interpretation, or at least a a constitutional interpretation, Mm -hmm. and that centers on You know problems in Imperial Britain. Yeah, the empire. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, so the empire is striking back right now. So where does your earlier work fit in, Ed? So you worked, uh, you worked with Gordon Wood at Brown. Mm -hmm. Gordon uh, hasn't didn't train that many graduate students who've gone to become professors. I mean, I know Brendan McConville comes to mind. Yourself.
2: Ooh, yes uh, um, yeah Ryan. um yeah Paul Gillia um um there's a couple of others uh um but yeah what there's not he, too many what of he us you like as
1: an advisor did he let you do whatever the hell you wanted or was he in your business or
2: uh he was he was not in your business mm-hmm. um and in fact uh, I tried when I started working on my dissertation uh to do what I thought he wanted he wanted um mm-hmm. I mean I was spent running around looking for topics that seemed to comport with his interests and uh, you mm-hmm. know I would come in to talk to him about them and he'd point out all the problems with the way I was thinking about judicial review or you know congressional <laughs> uh, internal politics or one thing or mm-hmm. another and finally one day he said to me look y- you seem like you're busy writing a dissertation to make me happy and that's there's no point in doing that mm-hmm. you need to figure out what's going to make you happy and mm-hmm. make you interested and uh, and that was really, I thought, uh, I mean, that's you know, amazingly liberating yeah. and, mm-hmm. and uh, inspiring, brief, you know, this sort of happens, you, you interact with your advisor in mm-hmm. these very stilted kinds of ways. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, one, two second gesture sends you on your way. And I think that's what happened here. And, mm-hmm. and I sort of went home and did some soul searching and started to think about what really interested me and, and, and um, and I realized that no, I didn't really want to write a dissertation on the court system or judicial review or you know this kind of thing. Not that these aren't important, and actually, in my dotage, I've become more interested <laughs> in this kind of stuff. But but uh, at the time, you know, I was hearing a lot of stuff about Native American history, and and, and I started reading all that. Uh, this was right at at the beginning of a kind of surge in interest in Native American history. Good timing. Um, well it, it it yeah, I suppose I mean uh I, I, I found this stuff very interesting yeah. and uh, inspiring. Um um and I guess I kind of fancied myself an intellectual historian at the mm. time. Um and sort of so that would have been
1: the height of the sort of liberalism republicanism stuff, right? Mid eighties in grad school
2: yeah I well mean, by the t- this was probably uh, was early a, 90s so it was starting was to taper out, yeah. off by yeah, that yeah. point yeah but, but it, you had to learn all i learned that. all you that learned and it was that. it was yeah. ever present for sure brutal. and, and yeah. it was a it was a uh um, yeah and Balin absolutely and a, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah massive but yeah. uh, well, you're there with
1: with one of the na- names in the field so it must have been a different kind of perspective and some poor schmuck like me who was out in the hinterland trying to figure all that stuff out at least you could go to him and say Hey, is this true and he'd be like, yeah oh,
2: no. well that, that's then true on doing? the other hand um, it was tough to get the other side of the story and, uh, and he yeah. didn't
1: really I mean you know he, he he didn't go in for that Republican synthesis stuff he's like, well yeah.
2: he 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 taught what he he taught his story and mm-hmm. and and he was he's very you know, um, committed to that story. And that's, you know, what, yeah. Well, he would have been writing
1: radicalism, I guess at the time. He did. Yes. That came out when I was in grad school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah,
2: Interesting. So,
1: So, um, the first book, the making of John Ledyard. No, actually my first first book book is called New World Babel. Babel.
2: Um, and so this is where my Indian history. uh, Yeah. 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 So this is a, a book about, um, It's, I, you know, I was interested in, I read all the sort of new Indian history that was coming out, but I also had a lot of interest in intellectual history and Mm -hmm. the history of, uh, you know, um, uh, social sciences. This Mm -hmm. was something that I got interested in even as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a good deal of time trying to think about whether there was some way to marry those two incompatible things. I mean, (laughs) one demands one type of research and the other a very different type. Um, and as I was kind of uh, reading around and, and, and uh, immersing myself in the source material, uh, I became aware of this problem of language and, you mm-hmm. know, communications. And, uh, you know, that sort of was the lead that I started to follow. And I realized that there was this, you know, pretty interesting uh, story to be told about how Europeans contended with the language uh, experience uh, when interacting with Natives, Native peoples, but also uh, thinking about Native American languages in terms of a larger um, linguistic cosmology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that, that ended up being the subject matter of my dissertation, and turn, my, my yeah. first book.
1: And how much of that on the European side is tied into religious belief about the effort to sort of understand the world? And Connect the dots and bring on the new millennium and all that. Yeah, almost
2: all of it (laughs) on the Mm -hmm. European side. I mean, or not all of it, but certainly the first half of my book. hence the Babel Mm illusion in the title. But yeah, the so the first part Mm -hmm. of the book joining the world. Yeah, it it deals with all these missionaries uh, and the the, the conflicting burdens. So you know, Catholics Mm -hmm. had one set of burdens based on their kind of sense of scriptural authority, Mm -hmm. and Protestants had a very different set of burdens based on, you know, their assumptions about individuals and their relation to scripture and right. so on. Yeah. And and so that that's the first part of the book, is how those things played themselves out in the different Catholic Protestant relations with, uh, with Native Americans.
1: The library at King's College uh, London, I was there last November, yes, of 2016. They brought out, because I'm an American, so they brought <laughs> out a, uh, a copy they own of the first proof of a chapter from uh, John Eliot's mm. Bible, uh, Bible. And the proof wow. was they are basically trying to figure out, you know, what fonts and, and how to set the type for these weird Indian, you know, words yeah. that are set in there. So they own this one, I can't remember which chapter it is, but it's one mm-hmm. chapter in the in the famous Bible, of which yeah. there's not many copies now. but. Yeah, it's really extraordinary uh, yeah
2: it's an amazing thing and he he Elliot this uh, New England printer and um, uh, uh, minister he uh, and missionary um, you know he he basically uh, he this is a New England uh, dialect of Algonquian yeah, family right. of languages Massachusetts called he uh, devised an alphabet in which to write it, he, you know, in, in consultation with some Native American tutors who taught him the language and helped him, you know. So they're different work symbols the in the alphabet. They're not the ones that we know. Or? They're mostly Roman, but there right. are some adjustments that yes, he had to make. A, yes, yeah. I think that's the that's probably yeah.
1: why they had to run this proof because they're yeah. trying to figure out what the yeah and a lot we of weird strings of
2: similar letters and stuff yeah. like that to try to capture the sounds and mm-hmm, yeah
1: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and is that the earliest. Uh, English language effort to do a native, uh, uh language.
2: Yes. It's, it's the first complete is translation. It, is there like
1: Spanish. Is there an earlier? Well, there
2: are, there are some fragments that are, uh, uh, you know, some Spanish fragments, um, in, uh, Nahua, I believe. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. but the first complete, uh, uh, uh non-European language Bible, I believe is the Elliot Bible oh, okay. um, and it's both old and New Testaments I mean it's the whole shebang um, and it's I believe the first uh, I mean uh, there had been a lot of work the, the Jesuits did a good deal of this sort of stuff in uh, in New France and so on um, but, but they but didn't need Indians to read Bibles no and gathers. so they didn't create yeah. an entire yeah. alphabet so that it could be, the the language could be transposed onto the printed page. And that's, that's what Elliot did. Right. So it was really a a radical, Mm -hmm. uh, development. And he, he thought that this, I mean, he was a millenarianist. You were talking about this, you know, and kind of second coming guy and caught up in a lot of this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff and, and, you know, saw the conversion of the natives as uh, crucial to that project. Um, So for, for
1: Elliot, were the natives analogous to like, the Hebrews being being converted or was it more like this uh, the Babel story the peoples of the world will be brought together in the light of God through divine scripture um,
2: I think it's more the latter yeah. uh, you know that, that this is part of a general proselytizing mm. instinct but but the Puritans did there there is that Question circulating about if these are the lost people, and I honestly can't remember exactly what uh, this was now 20 years come ago. Come on, but man. Uh, yeah, but but um, but you that wrote is part that of the book. The, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> do you ever pick yeah. it up and you're like, who wrote this? This is really good. I do uh, <laughs> read stuff occasionally that I wrote and think, oh, that's actually pretty good, it's yeah, amazing.
1: Yeah. So, so, was that your uh, expo- first exposure to the Huntington? Were you there for that project, or did that come? No, that.
2: Your uh, so I graduated with my PhD in 1996 and then I got the postdoc at the Huntington I had a year of, of mm-hmm. unemployment my wife started a PhD program in Chicago so we moved mm-hmm. from Rhode Island back to Chicago where I'm from what school did uh, you go? University of Chicago Wh- who is your wife she's not a historian she's a uh, uh, her name is Stacy Rutledge and she's a educational Policy researcher, she does stuff on yes. I was at Chicago in that time. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, right.
1: I was at the University of Chicago. Oh, I didn't know that's where you got your degree. I got my degree, yeah. And my wife was a PhD student in the English department there,
2: so yeah, I'm sure we crossed paths. Well, (laughs) that's where I went to (laughs) college, so I'm I'm very familiar with it. And I grew up not too far from there. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well yeah. let's
1: let's get to the main event because I'm wasting valuable time in this interesting conversation. Uh, we'll skip poor John Ledyard and jump right into Tom Paine's Iron Bridge building the United States. So Tom Paine, now Al Young would say he always went by Thomas Paine. So how dare you call him Tom Paine? But it, was that forced upon you by No, US?
2: I that's my uh, choice. Thomas <laughs> Paine's Iron Bridge sounded bad, basically. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, no,
1: it's let it's, your ear guide you. Is the key. I've
2: I've been hassled about that. Oh, <laughs> um, really? Yeah, I, I mean, he it. actually often just signed. I mean, as you know, his stuff was when it was printed when he put his name to it, especially in newspapers. If he did put his name to it, mm. he did it as T H O S. Payne rather than yeah. Thomas. There you go. So you know the yeah. abbreviated version. Thomas. Um Yeah, and and of course Payne was widely caricatured and abused. His image was, you know, mm-hmm. you know he was he was the most caricatured prominent political figure yeah. in early late eighteenth early nineteenth century Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the the shortened version Tom is associated with the caricature and the derision and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I, I suppose, yeah. I mean, uh, people know who Tom Paine
1: is. That's the key. You yeah. Know, uh, they they don't necessarily know who John Ledyard is. Yeah.
2: Well, is that's that why really? I wrote about <laughs> Payne. <'cause laughs> I, I realized after writing about someone nobody ever heard of, it was it's <laughs> this, this, this rough sledding. I needed to yeah. need to up my game Step a bit. Step it up. Okay. Yeah. Well,
1: so Tom, I've always I've always liked Tom Paine. I've always pati- had a particular affinity for Payne. Uh, his aggressive writing and the revolution, both revolutions, in um, uh, French and American. What brought you to pain?
2: Um, well, I teach pain uh, both in my American Revolution class and in an undergraduate survey that I've been teaching for many years. Um, and you know, I finished this book you mentioned on John Ledyard uh, in 2006 or something like that, um, and was thinking about a new project. Um, and you know, kind of serendipitously began to read more deeply in Payne's writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, you know, most of my teaching centers on common sense, his wow. famous 1776 pamphlet. Yeah. And so I decided that I'd read everything basically and the crisis papers and rights of man and age mm-hmm. of reason and mm-hmm. everything else. Um, and in this process, uh, I noticed that there was this weird hiatus in the 1780s mm. when he wasn't really writing very much and he seemed to be working on this iron bridge project yeah. and so i sort of uh, started looking at the biographies and the various things written about Payne to see what the deal was with this um, i'm from a i have a construction background i guess that's mm. probably part of it my family was in the construction business so I kind of am interested in this sort of thing, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I guess I decided that the, the people mentioned it, the bridge, but typically as a kind of side And, and yeah. so yeah. as so I, Payton kind of too
1: was in the age of life, yeah, exactly. You know. Just another he hobby. He also horse was an innovator, a, right? Yeah.
2: But yeah. you know, as I kind of got into this more and started reading a bit more on the bridge stuff you know that's not really how he characterized it He he said that this was really serious business and a kind of career path for him Mm -hmm. after the revolution Um, and one can argue about how earnest and sincere he was in these kinds of statements but you know it seemed to me that this this warranted explanation like why did this pamphleteer at the height of his powers decide to go into the Iron Bridge business. Yeah, well, it's it's um,
1: yeah, it's a great question, a historical question about this man's biography. What, so, the sources um, for Payne. Um, you mentioned all the great pamphlets. What uh, is the is the. I mean, where are his letters? Uh, largely, I mean, I know. Yeah. Obviously, there's the Eric Foner edited volume of the two volume collection of letters and writings. Is that the that's, last? That's 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 uh, actually have? Philip Foner. Who oh, Philip I think Foner. Is, sorry, his uncle. Eric's uncle? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So.
2: Uh. Yeah. That's the only existing kind Kinda of, of complete. Volume. Yeah. We we don't really have a a good papers edition for Payne. Yeah. Um, so where are the um, manuscript papers? So. There really aren't too many. I mean, most of them were destroyed uh, at some point in the early 19th century, at Mm -hmm. least. Uh, There are some things that have been identified subsequent to that, newspaper essays mostly, that don't appear in uh, the the Philip Foner volumes. Um, But most of the- we
1: acquired a pain letter, actually, maybe a year and a half ago that is an unknown pain letter written from Paris in 1789. Uh, huh. to a, a guy in England where he
2: yeah, that's he right at the bridge when he's working on the bridge so that oh, well, would be we, we have to look tonight. at it. yeah, yeah to explain everything that I tried to infer well there's <laughs> a big
1: section in there about yeah the importance of bridges and the, no I, I don't recall the bridge it could be in there though to be frank but the part of it that I remember and the reason we went after it was because he's writing to a correspondent in England about religious liberty. Huh. and he's in the midst of the, you know he's, it's in the fall of 1789 so he's in Paris in the midst of the kind of
2: yeah right when things he, are getting
1: really hot and uh, and he's quoting from Washington's um, uh, essay to, or, no, essay Washington's answer to the Quakers so as you know Washington goes on all these travels around mm-hmm. and, and 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 people thank him and whatever and he responds with whatever and, and so he, he, Payne copies out a section from Washington's uh, letter to the Quakers that was printed in the newspaper, hmm. and is saying to this correspondent in England, hey, you need to read this. Look what they're doing in America. This is the great Washington talking about religious freedom of conscience. And, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're going to do something like that in France, and I know you a dissenter Hi. person in England, this will interest you. That's, that's the component of it, that the reason we bought it. Huh. It's a fairly long letter, though. So That's interesting. There may be some yeah, like bridge I mean, propaganda in there, too. Yeah, well,
2: <laughs> I don't I know. I, <laughs> I, I'm trying to th- I can't think of yeah. you know what Quakers he would have been. Yeah. I mean, he himself had some. His father was a Quaker. But yeah. um, But I can't think of who he would have been associated with. Well, I don't think it was uh, necessarily a
1: Quaker he was writing to. I think he oh, was I writing see. to someone Just who was generally. in the center of some kind uh-huh. and and pointing out this letter to uh-huh. the Quakers. Uh-huh. The, the general tenure was more about you know, freedom of conscience.
2: Uh-huh. Is, uh huh huh yeah. anyway so that's an was it
1: what's that well, no. Burke no no would no no someone famous with him somebody yeah, uh, somebody famous that I would, mm, I would okay. remember. anyhow okay so you come across the story of the iron bridge you realize there's not many papers of pain
2: yeah so i so have to try do? to figure this out um contextually and no. inferentially uh, because he, he wrote an essay about iron bridge construction in 1803 right after he came back to the United States um, and then there's a number of letters where he talks about his bridge project um, but he never really explains or at least the the documentation explaining exactly why he made this turn in the mid-1780s just isn't there so um, you know I had to try to put this together through circumstance and context. Um, and, you know, I, I looked at, there's a variety of archival sources that were helpful to me for this. Yeah. I think the most useful were actually some papers of a historian, an engineer, a British engineer who was also a historian of iron bridges and who passed away in the mid 1980s yeah. um, and who assembled a massive archive. On the history of iron bridges oh, there you go. Um, that <laughs> exists at the um, the, uh, at a, the British National Civil Engineering Society in yeah. London yeah. and I was able to go through his stuff and he had a lot of very interesting notes and yeah. and references uh, that helped me sort of yeah. begin to piece some of these Put things the together, together. Yeah. Um, yeah you know and then other things in London the Johnson Library I found some very interesting documents, which you'll hear about tonight, that shed some light on, yeah. on Payne's uh, interest in this. Um, and then uh, mo- most of his bridge building uh, concerns, well, I th- he, he becomes interested in this project while he's still in, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, he goes to Europe uh, in the summer of 1787, the spring of 1787 to pursue the bridge project. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's over there so that doing that when yeah. he gets caught up in the so revolutionary events. He's
1: in France because of the bridge project. Uh, actually, or was he, he, he,
2: what he, he went to France initially yeah. in the summer of 87. And he was there for a few months. And then he went back to England to visit his mother. Okay. Um, and it and wasn't
1: persona non grata in England? He was considered an no, American? No, not yet. He, so he, he was, was just basically an American citizen.
2: He was an American citizen. He was the author yeah. of common sense. Uh, you know, he was Fairly well yeah. known, but nowhere near as famous as he would become yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he hung said some around pretty with mean things
1: about the king uh, you're able just to sort of wander. The yeah, streets of yeah, yeah, yeah
2: an ass for a lion yeah, yeah,
1: actually, the other thing they showed me at kings at their library was their first edition of common sense that the printer, you know, had to write in by hand the really nasty bits, so that when you sold it, you could, or when this was found, you oh, could claim I you, didn't, you didn't, print the oh, treasonable stuff. So it's all handwritten in there. But like, you know, monarch is nothing else but a criminal, you know, yeah, with, with a good pedigree or something. That's you know all the great stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Have you ever seen one of those? They're I've not really seen cool. that. That is yeah, really well, there fascinating. So, I okay. know there were... There Two were, things
2: at King College Library. You need yeah, to yeah. there were a lot of, <laughs> of British editions of Common Sense, 20 of them just in the first yeah. year. Amazing. Um, Did but, it have an
1: impact in Britain? I mean, would it be something when the Rights of Man came out that people would connect it directly with that immediately? Or I or think not? so, yeah. I mean, I don't think...
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are sort of percolating radical circles, Wilkesites and people like that who mm. uh, you know, some of the more even some of the Foxites, the more kind of uh hostile so Whigs, potentially
1: Republican sort of Yeah, or certainly
2: enemies of the standing order and the yeah. North Ministry and uh and right. you know very hostile to the corruption perceived yeah. in the North Ministry. Um, you know, who are sympathizers and when he goes back to work on the bridge, uh some of these people you know he he corresponds and and becomes friendly with some of them most notably edmund burke mm-hmm. um you know he starts uh, communicating with burke actually yeah, visits burke at beckons yeah. uh so burke and Field, he know each other well oh yeah okay. yeah they come to be you know i mean i i don't know if it's appropriate to call them friends but they associate on multiple occasions, and Burke has pain well, to his they country. They house. Gotta be friends because then they um, can become
1: frenemies later. Right,
2: exactly. Well, they become very intense <laughs> frenemies, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> they yeah, do. So, yeah. all right. So let's
1: backtrack a, a wee bit here. Let's get our facts straight. So, Payne designs an iron, cast iron bridge. To what? Uh, to to. So he is uh, it an American river he's thinking about yes it first, he like the River? the Schukel, yeah so his Schukel. plan
2: is to is to build a bridge across the Schuylkill. Skookil okay. um, that's three Schukel. we just pronounced yeah it yeah ways. I was corrected the first time I gave a paper on this many years ago and yeah. someone came up to me and said we were trying to figure out what you meant by the Schuylkill, or yeah. by the Schuylkill. the Skookil and, kill and he's, like they it. said I'm from Pennsylvania it's called the Schuylkill. Yeah. so anyway um, yeah so he. Uh, there's a push to the, the, the river, and the Schuylkill is is a mess. So the, the mm. river during the war uh, had been bridged by these floating bridges, and the floating bridges were very dangerous, mm. and they would get pushed down the river. In fact, oh. you've probably seen an image of one of them, because Washington uh, in 89, on his tour back to New York after he is... You know, yeah. anointed president. Right. Yeah. He he crosses the uh, Gray's Ferry Bridge right. just south of Philadelphia, and um, um, the uh, um, you know the great uh, Philadelphia impresario and art museum uh, guy um, uh, Charles, Charles Peel. Wilson Peel. Yeah, yeah, he he decorates the bridge for right. Washington's yeah. crossing, and this is a floating bridge, so it's basically a pontoon mm. bridge across the river. Um, and these things were dangerous and they would get swept down the river, um, when there were floods mm-hmm. and people would fall off of them if they undulated too much. And the proprietors of these were ferry operators mm-hmm. and they would go broke because it cost too much to replace the bridge. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was a mess. Um, and so the city, uh, and the state began discussing the possibility of actually building a permanent bridge mm-hmm. over the Schuylkill. Um, and, and there's a group of, kind of entrepreneurial Philadelphians who get into this and Payne is is aware of these these things and he begins to advocate for a particular design for this Mm. uh, new bridge Um, and uh, that's sort of how he he gets going on this and that's where the idea Where does he come to the
1: idea of uh, cast iron is the way to go? Were so there other cast iron bridges? No, there were. There so was only in one, none
2: in, none in North America. Yeah. At this time, there was only one in the world of any magnitude, and mm. it's called Iron Bridge, yeah. uh, because it was so distinctive. Mm. Um, it was built uh, in, um, uh, in the West Midlands near a town called Colebrookdale in, in, in Shropshire, um, and it opened in 1779. Um, so it's not. It's around the time that Payne is. Uh, is did he know about that bridge? Or it's not it clear it to me that he South did. Jones yeah, it was. It, it was known as a kind of wondrous that. thing, and it yeah. You know, there's commentary around in all in newspapers right. and stuff like that. So somebody um,
1: probably knew about it that told Payne about
2: it. Yeah, point, the, I think did. the the most likely connection for Payne is that he, when he started to get interested in this, mm-hmm. he hired a recent English immigrant named John Hall. Uh, who came from Birmingham or right around Birmingham, which okay. is not too far from where this bridge was built. Right. Um, and Hall was a mechanic, so he was a tinkerer yeah. Yeah. and a maker of things. So he would have known. So he yeah. certainly knew about it, and mm-hmm. he worked with Payne building prototypes for the Schuylkill River Bridge hmm. that Payne planned. How to large were the prototypes? Were they small? Uh, to scale, ten to thirteen feet to scale. Yeah. Okay. So they were big enough to walk over. Um, you know, th- in those days, the only way you could, uh, persuade anybody that your engineering idea was worth worthy was to actually build a model of it to yeah. scale. And, yeah. and, you know, this was very typical of, of any kind of architectural enterprise, especially if it was novel in any way that, you know, yeah. you, you, no, you I make mean, sure
1: it didn't fall down.
2: Right. So you'd start with one size and then you'd build right. a slightly bigger one. Um, and Payne and Hall built a wooden prototype uh, in um, 1786, uh, um, and it, it was widely praised, and David Rittenhouse and all these sort of Philadelphia uh, people uh, mm-hmm. s- spoke very highly of it, but it, it Payne wasn't confident in its structural integrity. And, and Payne's innovation in this whole business was the, the idea that you could build a bridge from one arch. So most bridges up to this point were a series, a, a sequential series of arches, yeah, right. either from stone the or Roman wood. Right, exactly. Style yeah. Bridge, yeah, and these presented all kinds of problems. The biggest one is that you know if the water is rushing hmm. in the river quickly, the the Trees piers get, get undermined. It yeah. gets clogged and it floods, or the yeah. piers get undermined and the thing collapses. Mm. And so Payne, you know, said, "Well, if you're going to build a permanent bridge, you can't do it in the old world style. You have to." Devise some kind of new technology, mm. and his uh, his um, uh, innovation here was to use a small segment of a large circle, as he put it. So to build a single arch that didn't have any mid-river piers mm-hmm. uh, that could you know bridge a, a lengthy span uh, across so the, the river. The piers
1: of the arch would be on the land, or they would. Yeah, so yeah. you'd have
2: embank yeah. or you'd yeah. have um, you know embankment yeah. towers or uh, mm-hmm. um, you know um, yeah. masonry structures on which the uh, it's the cast-iron bridge uh, I'm making for those of
1: you watching from home yes without the yes. video version I'm making a big arch motion with my arm
2: yes and then yeah. the the arch rests <laughs> on what they call abutments yeah which are the uh, the, the the structure on the yeah. on the banks that hold the arch uh, across the river so
1: did he win the contract uh, to build the river Well, the bridge in in Pennsylvania.
2: Nobody did. Uh, Then, this sort of got tangled up in politics. Shockingly, Uh, the the state legislature was reluctant to issue a charter to a company uh, that was Mm going to try to be the proprietors of this new bridge. Um, You know, they were fighting about this. uh, in the mid 80's. Um, that was
1: the period of Pennsylvania politics t- came to a standstill and it was all factionalism and then Benjamin Franklin arrives back from Paris in 1785 becomes the president of Pennsylvania you would think he would have gotten behind some innovative bridge design.
2: Well pa- pa- he did and he yeah. uh, in fact uh, the Payne and Hall made a second prototype out of iron once they realized that the wood arch yeah. wouldn't work as well as they thought yeah. and they displayed it in Franklin's house and then from there, they took it to the State House to display it. Um, but, you know, mm. uh, Franklin's effects were minimal. Uh, there yeah. was still an, en- an enormous and intense factionalism. Mm. And uh, mm. the Western Pennsylvanians were not interested in chartering any companies that are going to serve the financial interests of the Eastern folks. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Payne decided that, you know, if he was going to get financing for this thing, they also were... Uh, the. There was a legislative committee set up to evaluate bridge designs. Mm. And they said, you know, well, you've got an interesting designer, but we, we don't know anything about iron bridges. And, you know, yeah. we can't really evaluate this. You need a more authoritative sort of, you know, uh, 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 judgment. And so, uh, you know, Payne decided he would go to go to Europe, France, and yeah. see if he couldn't. The French were the best bridge builders in the world at the time. So he went there to see if he couldn't get some. French bridge builder is possibly the uh, Royal Academy of Science to yep. to to Sign validate off on this yes. new design. Yeah, new yeah, yeah. bridge. yeah.
1: Okay, so that that he goes to Europe. He's got his design. Uh, does he have a prototype with him that he was he able brings? To send a, yes, to he him?
2: brings an iron yeah. 13-foot yeah, exactly. yep. thirteen foot prototype with him. Travelling salesman. Yeah, exactly. and he he, he he erects it in in Paris for mm-hmm. the. Members of the Royal Academy of Sciences to, to review, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and French are the uh, best engineers in the world at that time. At that time, yeah. <laughs> in the next hundred years, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they say, yeah, this is actually pretty, pretty, pretty cool. good, yeah. yeah. Um, but he discovers he starts going back to England, and mm. uh, he, I think it's probably through Burke that he meets mm. some iron founders, uh, two brothers whose father started an iron foundry in Rotherham in Yorkshire, um, and uh, uh, these brothers decide to support Payne's bridge building and mm. and partner with him, um, and they provide some of the financing for a much larger prototype that Payne builds in London, and mm. this one is actually 100 feet. Um, Does it
1: actually go over a, a body no, of water? He,
2: No, they build it on a, on a Bowling Green uh, uh, near Paddington, huh. um, and it's purely display you know they yeah. want to display this architectural marvel right um, and uh, in this the, they build it in uh, it's finished there's some setbacks to the construction not surprisingly but they ultimately finish it in September of 1790
1: Oh my. Um, yeah. and
2: people pay a shilling to walk over along the bridge and gaze out from the you know the top of the arch and that sort of thing mm. um, and uh, so you can ascend the arch yeah mm-hmm. wow. yeah it's it's designed to be walked on so it's built I in this sure. you know green pasture area mm-hmm. um, and and done so precisely to generate public yeah. interest yeah. and possibly uh, generate more investment interest and, and that sort of thing is he forming um, a company
1: at all I mean what is the how, how's he gonna man how's he gonna use any investor interest in this case
2: well that's a good question I think he he's not at this point, he's so unsure. For people to say, this is a great idea.
1: Yeah, we so I think you. I think
2: he's he's yeah. basically uh, hoping that at, at th- by this time. So this is yeah. a couple of years after he's come to Europe. Um, his hope is to build a full scale bridge somewhere, possibly over the Thames. Um, wow, and, that's ambitious. You know, yeah, start so, big. Like well, that, yeah, that. they were. Yeah, there's reason <laughs> that he would have hoped for this. Is that yeah. there's terrible congestion and all kinds of problems. The Westminster Bridge, which was the newest one by this point, was damaged. The London and Bridge was falling down, we know and that, that was a nonstop yeah. problem. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah. um, it, it, the big problem with the London Bridge was it—it—it it, it, uh, it, it was so massive in its sort of structure, and yeah. the parts that that were in the river that boats, big boats, uh, ocean-going vessels couldn't get under it and and reach the center of the city and stuff. Um, so he, he thought that possibly he could get a commission to design and build something on that scale. Wow. Um,
1: that would have been extraordinary.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would have been. He should um, have
1: started with, like, Oxford or something. Well, I think he, he, so he did
2: actually. Uh, it, it, it seems as though a version of this bridge, uh, there was another. There was a kind of aristocratic gentleman who lived near the Rotherham Ironworks who took an interest in yeah. this, a man by the name of Foljam. I don't quite know what the name. It's an odd name, but this guy uh, was very interested in what Payne was doing, and and, and paid him uh, for a bridge over a river. Uh, the, um, I want to say it's the Dan River. Mm-hmm. That's an English river yeah. that ran through his estate. Oh. Um, so there's a hundred, or there was for a time, uh, an iron bridge over that oh, okay. uh, river. Yeah. So th- um, so there were
1: bridges, Payne's bridges, going up somewhere.
2: Yes, at least that one and then the one yeah, in London. The, the
1: big, um, yeah, the big one.
2: But yeah. the, 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 the whole thing, so they had some weather problems, and, and you know, once the weather turned bad in the, in the fall, he sort of had to uh, cover the bridge and wait until spring to open the display again. In the meantime, uh, Burke published Reflections on mm-hmm. the Revolution in mm-hmm. France, yeah. um, which is uh, this uh, you know, screed uh, against uh, events across the English Channel um, and, and a publication that Payne was alarmed by and deeply offended by, um, especially coming from someone who he thought was a friend a and friend basically liberty, a, yeah. a political ally. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Payne decided to rebut this and, uh, he continued doing bridge-related stuff, but, but, uh, the rebuttal, uh, which was, uh, uh, his pamphlet, Rights of Man, the second part of which aroused intense government mm-hmm. scrutiny, and ultimately mm-hmm. he had to flee England uh, because he was going to be charged with seditious libel, um, ended up going to France. And this, this pr- sort of put the kibosh on his architectural career, at least mm. for the moment. Um,
1: OK, yeah. Well, right, so, so that's when he gets caught up in this whole new revolutionary fervor. Uh, he becomes a member of the National Assembly somehow.
2: Of the Constitutional Convention, yeah. Okay. Which uh, one? Yeah. I mean, I guess this is the second been. one that's convened in uh, September of 1792. He's he's elected delegate. That's from the Pas one. de Calais, yeah. 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 yeah, it's the messy mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who deal with the question of the fate of the king they and all that stuff. the king? Yeah. 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 Is
1: he in, in involved in that debate? Yes, he is. He's and very he says, much involved. In execute that. the man. Or does he? Well,
2: he says, uh, first he says, this is silly. We, we, we are not a tribunal. We're a constitutional convention. So, you know, we, we, we can create the constitution he and he speak then French, no, he had a translator. Mm-hmm. Um, and this caused a lot of problems for him. So people would put words in his mouth and he'd say, I never said that. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he, he managed to fly under the radar, even though he opposed the trial of the king and then he opposed the execution. Um, but finally, uh, by, uh, December of 1793, yeah, right. he got thrown into, uh, Luxembourg Palace, which had been converted to a prison, um, at, uh, at that point, and spent, uh, most of the next year, uh, there. And in England,
1: he would have been associated with the, the, the terror. I mean, he w- right. I mean, wouldn't he be associated eventually with the worst excesses of the French Revolution?
2: Yes, yeah, by by He'd many. Although there's still many pain admirers, yeah. and there's a lot Payne-ites. of, sort of yeah. exactly, and there are constitutional societies all over the right. place that, you know, point to, you know, pain as one of their uh, sort of um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 forebearers and and so on. Yeah, right. So yeah, I think for the pit, so the pit ministry uh, came to see pain as, as a real problem, um, as a source of, of Jacob, Jacobin radicalism in, in England, um, and pursued a campaign against him, hired a, a hack Scottish writer to write a fake biography of pain mm-hmm. and you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. Um, and so his reputation was deeply, deeply uh, tarnished yeah. by that. Um, and the
1: bridge projects.
2: So the bridge project, uh, it, it, he, he struggled to 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 return to it, but he did actually return to it after he got out of prison. No. Um, and while well, he was in Paris, so he had about uh, he's he's let out of prison in um, I think uh, September of seventeen uh, eighty three. Um, sorry, seventeen eighty four. And he uh, he he spends. He's actually the ninety four. Uh, sorry, ninety four. Yes, thank you. Uh, he, so he's wait a second. Yeah, yeah yeah no like I got my numbers uh, mm-hmm. messed up here, but he. Um, you know he the French government actually he, he petitions to be compensated for his service because he's destitute and they do actually pay him yeah. not a lot but enough so that he can live yeah. kind of as a kind of pensioner um, and and he does get his seat back in the Constitutional Convention I guess I'm not sure exactly I can't remember exactly how this all worked out but you know he you know, he sort of recovers although he's not Flourishing or right. you know particularly influential, um, and he lives in a garret uh, on uh, uh, on the left bank. Uh, and he's writing,
1: and he must be writing. He's writing well, *Age of Reason* or Yes, he wrote stuff? *Age of
2: Reason*. Uh, you know, probably mm-hmm. before or during his prison time. Okay, it's not yeah. all that clear, mm-hmm. um, but it came out while he was in prison, I believe. Oh really? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or maybe immediately after I'm, I'm and I mean he, has we'll agricul- he has
1: the his essays on agriculture as well yeah he? I mean, yeah yeah. yeah
2: well well he wrote a uh, it's called, um, it's called like a redistribution. Agrarian, uh, agrarian
1: laws and stuff
2: yeah and I am I'm, I'm, see, I'm just. Uh, but yes he, he writes this is sort of a third part of Rights of Man okay it yeah. comes out mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. actually before Age of Reason if I'm remembering correctly um, in which he calls for you know, redistribution, redistributive taxes and uh, taxation uh, programs that would actually provide for people who can't work, uh, you know, orphans, widows, uh, people who had served in the military, um, and so on. Um, um, so he's a very early proponent of uh, progressive uh, um, taxation policies. Um, um, but, yeah, you know, right. most of this stuff. Is overshadowed by two things, n- mainly the Age of Reason, which he yeah. uh, attacks organized religion. Particularly that's the thing that really makes him
1: unbearable in the United States. Probably.
2: It seems like that's one of them. The other is that he wrote this letter to George Washington that's yeah. widely now, published, mm-hmm. in which he basically attacked his personal character and yeah. said he was a perfidious and a liar, and uh, you know that that was deeply, deeply offensive, obviously uh, to. Lots of Americans We're here at Mount Vernon. Um, it hurts yeah. Feelings, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he because he thought, wanted
1: Washington to help him get out of prison. Right.
2: Yeah. He thought that yeah. the administration was ignoring him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and you know, after it, all he'd done. for yeah, the Yeah. So, of independence. you know, obviously he had become by that point a lightning rod and the Washington yeah. administration was worried that if they, you know, uh, got involved with pain that this association would get back to the pitt administration right. and that would tarnish ongoing discussions about rejuvenating trade with uh, Great Britain and so on yeah. and so you know there are political reasons that pain becomes a kind of poison pill and then pain um, ca-
1: interprets the Jay treaty as a pro-british you know yeah you completely know, yeah treaty, yeah absolutely yeah. And, yeah. And,
2: and basically thinks that that uh, Washington betrayed our allies. Betrayed, and, yeah, betrayed the cause yeah. of freedom and liberty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But
1: Payne yeah. ends up in the United States, right? And yeah. So she- uh,
2: yeah. Well, flash forward. Yeah, Jefferson uh, agrees to let him come back to the country, although he pays handsomely for this politically because he's mm. he's attacked in the press for yes. associating with the infidel Payne and mm-hmm. and um, and Payne comes back uh, to the United States and. Uh, he brings bridge models with him that he had built in France, and he- He's, He must have had some
1: serious storage opportunities there, I mean-
2: Well, these were oh, pretty small, yeah, okay. these were, yeah, these were smaller. <laughs> these weren't the 13-foot ones, they okay. were, they were smaller. Um, yeah, but he, he wanted to get mm-hmm. support from Congress to, build, to go back to work and build prototypes again, mm. Yeah, and, and so he uh, convinced Jefferson to let him come to Washington City present his models to Congress, Mm. Um, um, but uh, he thought that Jefferson was going to do this for him or help him do this, and of course Jefferson, you know, basically didn't want to deal with it. He (laughs) was happy to let him back in the country, but that was about it. Beyond that, he he didn't really want to get involved, and of course Payne left in a huff and went up to Philadelphia. Did you write a
1: nasty letter about Jefferson to anybody?
2: Not that I'm aware of, but, nice. but he did complain about this yeah. and, yeah. Uh, you know, um, not in a, quite a public way. He well, maybe there's learned plenty of states lessons.
1: he could have went to, right, and asked them, so he well, went to New York.
2: Yeah, he went to Philadelphia, Philadelphia. but yeah. by then, you know, he, he was persona non grata there, too, yeah. um, uh, and then most of his friends were, you know, Franklin was gone, obviously, and, you uh, uh, so his, his circle had kind of dissipated. Yeah. Um, uh, Charles Wilson Peel took the bridge models and installed them in his museum, but that was about as much attention as he could get at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And so he retreated to his farm in New Rochelle. Um, it's interesting because if, if,
1: if uh, Washington would have been one of the people really interested in this sort of thing, I mean, given yeah. his Potomac Navigation Project yeah. and the, the need for bridges and sorts yeah. of internal improvements. Yeah. Um, well and know. I think
2: I think that's the main argument of my book, which is uh, that, you know, Pain is often thought of as this outlier kind of, you know, progenitor of the bomb throwing yeah. radical. Yeah. Um, we don't really think of him as somebody who's Radical vision ever was in any way translated into sort of concrete steps to yeah, build seen, the modern holidays. Yeah, well, who yeah. said
1: right? He's better at tearing down, yeah, the building up. that Exactly, the John Adams. Works. Yeah,
2: yeah. Adams. So, <laughs> yeah, not a fan. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So he, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the point. He, w- yeah. he was very much in the mainstream when it came to sort of matters of internal improvement, mm-hmm. um, and you know, probably to uh, an excessively idealistic degree, not surprisingly, given his politics. Mm. Um, I mean, he really did think that, that internal improvement, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania, which, as you said, was so factionalized. you know, he, he thought that if you could just bridge the rivers and get people more easily to Philadelphia to do their business, that this would deal with the, 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 the schism that yeah. had split the state apart. Um,
1: yeah, you got to combine their interests somehow. And if they're completely separated, then they'll never get together. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah interest yeah. being the thing that makes it all go round. Exactly, right? so, yep, yeah. Yeah, well,
2: he and George Washington were peas in a pod in that regard. Yeah, I think this is, yeah. you know, the sort of one of the core elements of, of mm-hmm. the revolutionary project, you yeah. know, is this sort of y- you've got to build the, the mechanisms that allow the state to cohere. And, yeah, you when know, you,
1: yeah, internal improvements in union. And chartered corporations would become the, yeah and that would be, those would be kind of a the three-legged stool of American development.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it
1: was Payne ahead of his time, or just stuck in bad politics, or should he have gone to Europe? Uh,
2: I think that, I think he was. So he
1: went back before the Constitutional Convention, he went to Europe. Yeah, so he wasn't there for any of that he's stuff. He's not involved uh, in that story. Though he
2: was clearly a, a, a fervent nationalist and supporter of—I mean, he supported uh, um, Robert Morris's programs to you yeah. know unify the state. So he would have been a, a
1: very powerful Federalist writer. He would have been the fourth Publius.
2: I would assume so. You know, I Does think. he, any, uh, he have cared much
1: about the de- lack of a Bill of Rights, or what do you?
2: It's an interesting question. Um, because he was a nationalist, as you yeah, said. I yeah. you wonder if he, you know. I I I mean, Payne Payne is a natural rights person, so I wonder if Payne wouldn't have come down on the side of Madison uh, with that well, P- Pennsylvania, sense that
1: Pennsylvania already had a declaration yeah. of
2: rights. You know, he
1: might not have seen a, another one necessary.
2: Yeah, and I don't I don't remember if he was involved. I mean, I know he was involved in. He, you know, the, the Constitution is modeled after his. Yeah. argument in favor of unicameralism but I'm not sure the, the rights came uh, a lot of
1: them came from the Mason Virginia uh, constitution. Model, yeah yeah and then they they changed him a little bit He may have been involved in that
2: yeah yeah I, I, that's an interesting question and I, I wonder what he would have thought about that um, I, I mean I, I think in that way he was probably a little bit more British in the sense that mm. you know he was willing to accept the possibility that rights were inherent and and fundamental and therefore didn't actually need to be codified, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the argument that Madison made against the Mm -hmm. Bill of Rights as well um, for the the federal Constitution. Well, yeah,
1: so when it comes down to ratifying the Constitution or not, it's not clear what Payne would have thought about a Bill of Rights, but he would have been a federalist
2: probably. I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think so, yeah. I mean, he... I think he got into the bridge stuff in part because of the fight in Pennsylvania over the yeah. bank. Yeah. So they're mm-hmm. trying to charter or they charter this national bank or the uh, Bank of North America uh, and it's chartered by the state of Philadelphia and a few other states and, and serves Congress. Um, and it's the fight over that that I think sh- demonstrates to him how profound the division at the Susquehanna River is between western Pennsylvania and eastern Pennsylvania um, and it's right around the time that fight is going on when he's decrying Westerners who are, he thinks are basically manipulated by Baltimore merchants, mm. uh, into opposing what is something obviously, uh, for the common good, this bank, yeah. um, chartered entity, uh, um, that he starts uh, thinking about how do we deal with this factionalism and, mm. and thinking mm. about his bridges and stuff. Fascinating.
1: So, uh, pain is misinterpreted. Is that what you're saying?
2: Um, I think somewhat. People are yeah. lazy with, with yeah.
1: poor He becomes just a bomb
2: thrower. I think so. I mean, I think he's he's you know like many of the founders. He's often thought of, uh, you know, uh, uh, outside of the context in which he lived and worked and yeah. did his thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think. I mean, I hope this. You know my book has offers some corrective and 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 makes pain interesting in ways that people hadn't really thought about him um, um. well i love
1: the quote by gordon wood right on the front another gem from one of america's <laughs> most imaginative historians now that's an interesting line you know it's sort of like uh he's very imaginative and you know, is that good or bad well it's I, good.
2: yeah yeah i, I the gem
1: uh, the gem gives it away Clearly thinks it's a great thing.
2: But uh,
1: could be a backhanded slap.
2: It sure could. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, 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 don't know. I mean, yeah, um, it's great. Um,
1: yeah. I like this one too by Woody Holton. The, uh, the, the blurb. Americans want to see the nation's adolescent as a time of infinite possibility, and so did Thomas Paine. But basically, you go on to say they were wrong. I mean, that's what he's, he, he says here that is that isn't, yeah. that, isn't what, that wouldn't be my takeaway from this conversation about the
2: book well so the i haven't we haven't talked too much about the politics surrounding this but that is an element of the story yeah. um, you know uh, basically the limits the, of revolution right so they yeah. the, the, the Pennsylvania state assembly can't get it together to charter a bridge company to support this project and there's not a permanent bridge built across the Schuylkill uh, until, uh, the early 19th century. It yeah. They, they completed, I think in 1805 is when the first permanent Schuylkill yeah. Bridge is, is completed. Well, so this make is, people feel uh, better about their 20 founders. years yeah. after, um, yeah. you know, so, you know, there's a lot of good ideas here and a lot of, uh, kind of arguments that would help, yeah. you know, uh, strengthen the union and, 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 and make life safer and easier for people. Um, but they devolve into political factionalism and feuding. Um, and uh, you know this I think is uh, is is what intrudes on pains or one of the things that intrudes on Payne's bridge building So
1: is it a book for all time then that American democracy has always been uh, Very challenging to get things done As practical and innovative as they may be even with a powerful advocate like a Tom Payne.
2: I think that's uh, I think yeah I mean, I think um, you know uh, uh, Government paralysis is not a new thing, um, <laughs> and uh, you know struggles over power and money and uh, government's role in the distribution of those things. No. This is not a new matter for us, um, and you know it's very much uh, omnipresent in Payne's world and and shapes this particular uh, no. enterprise.
1: Well, congratulations on a fantastic uh, study. I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Looking forward to your comments tonight, and uh, thanks for spending time with us.
2: Thank you. It's been
1: really fun. Everybody go out and get it. Tom Paine's Iron Bridge, Building a United States.
0: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org. slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.